Okay, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, he's, uh, he said, I'm going to make you a present. He said, I'm going I'm to edit together all the, I'm glad you're here, thanks for coming, so, and so you can just <laughs> hear them all in a row. <laughs> if you're listening, I hope you do it. Okay, so um, anyway, uh, that'll be fun. So, so uh, Rosh Hashanah is uh, a few days away, literally upon us. And um, I want to I want to share a thought. Uh, and uh, I please forgive me if I mention this on Rosh Hashanah itself. Just one one thought. I'll try not to repeat anything else. But this is. Uh, are you going to be there for Rosh Hashanah? Okay. No. Okay. Good. Even better. Even better. Okay. So uh, okay. So all the more reason to say it now. So. So uh, we had the uh, honor of uh, having uh, Rabbi Simcha Weinberg with us on, uh, on Shabbos, and he gave, um, he gave over something from the, the Zohar about uh, sort of the kind of the spiritual dynamics of what's in play uh, on Rosh Hashanah. And I want to use that to um, help to explain a very uh, perplexing Rashi. Um, and it's a... Uh, it's a, it's a Rashi I, I think people have kind of struggled with, um, uh, probably for, for a good thousand years, I would imagine. And, uh, and I don't know if anyone's ever kind of thought about this uh, in terms of its reference to uh, Rosh Hashanah. Mo- most likely they have, by the way. But this thought was new to me. So, uh, so let me just... I'm just finding it. So... So, so let's set the scene. Well, here, let me give you the, the Rashi over first, if, if I can just find it. Uh, it's, it's when... It's when uh, okay, I got it. So, so um, this is in Parshas Todos. It's uh, chapter 27, um, uh, verse 18. We can start there. But let me just set the scene for you. So all of you know the scene. It's a, it's a very famous scene. Um, uh, Yitzchak is Isaac is is going to give the, the 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 blessing to the next generation. So who is going to get the blessing? What is the what is the what is the Jewish line going to be in this world? And he's really giving him the the keys to heaven and earth. I mean, this is really this is a very very big deal. This blessing. It's a very 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 big deal. And um, he sends he sends. Uh, Asav off to go hunting and while he's off hunting uh, Isaac's wife Rebecca Rivka knows what Yitzchak I guess fully doesn't comprehend because Yitzchak uh, I heard the explanation that Yitzchak was waiting for the last moment for Asav to do tshuva to, to get his act together spiritually speaking so, to the last moment, in other words, in this understanding of it, Yitzchak, Isaac had full understanding of who Esav was. But because Esav had so much power, meaning he was, he was a hunter and he was out in the field and he was like this classic extrovert, he-man, go-getter, you know what I mean? That if he was able to combine all of those attributes with spiritual mastery and greatness, that... That would be quite a, quite a guy, 
You know, so so Yitzchak was was thinking to the last minute, Esav might still be able to get it together. All right, so that's you know, but Rivka understood that that wasn't going to happen. Rivka saw Esav for who he was and understood that that transformation, even at the eleventh hour, just wasn't going to happen. And so, so, so really, and really, Yaakov was the one all along who was the right choice. In other words, don't, don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Even according to the understanding that Isaac had in mind this, this amazing scenario, it's not like Yaakov was plan B. Yaakov was always plan A. It's just to give you an insight into what Isaac was thinking. Isaac wasn't deluded, in other words. He wasn't deluded. Okay. But it was always Yaakov. Yaakov was always the first choice. And by the way, he was always the firstborn. And the, on a spiritual level, it's because he was the first conceived. And, and, uh, and Rashi provides a, a very interesting um, way to visualize this. Imagine a kind of a, uh, a bottle with a narrow opening, kind of like your classic uh, Coca-Cola bottles, right? Where it's sort of like tapered and then it kind of gets bigger, all right? Now imagine you put in a, I'm making this up, a, a blue marble in first, and then you put in a red marble. Okay? Now, let's say you turn it upside down. The one that came, that you put in second, will come out first. Alright? Right? The red one, which was put in second, will come out first. And so that bottle, that's sort of like the structure of a, a womb, if you will. That's sort of like the the birth process, okay? But the first one was the first one who was conceived. So, so Yaakov was the first one conceived. So on a spiritual level, he always was the first. And like I say, it was always plan A for Yaakov to get the blessing. Okay? But, but nonetheless, and we are talking about Rosh Hashanah, by the way, but we have to get there. So, so let's keep on going. So Yaakov dresses up like Esav. That's the instructions that he gets from Rivka, from his mother. Dress up like Esav, and then go and get the blessing. Okay? Alright, so, and he gets the blessing. He gets the blessing. But, but, um, but Yitzchak, Isaac, is very suspicious. Because there are a couple of things that just aren't making any sense whatsoever. The fact that he sent him out to hunt for food and he came back so quickly? That's weird. Like, Isaac's going, that's weird. That doesn't sound right. Then, he literally, it literally doesn't sound right because he hears Jacob's voice and he's like, that's, 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 not, that's not the right voice, you know? So, 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 Isaac, Yitzchak, starts to interrogate Yaakov, and starts to ask him some very, very pointed questions, trying to determine what's going on exactly. All right, now we're getting closer to what the real question is, okay? So I'll just start reading. It's the middle of the story, but I'll start reading. So this is uh, 2718. And he came to his father and he said, Father, so this is, this is Jacob speaking, disguised as Asaph. He came to his father and he said, Father, and he said, um, here I am, 
Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, now listen very carefully, it is I, Esau, your firstborn. All right? Now that sounds like, wait a second, that's not the truth, is it? <laughs> is that the truth? That's not the truth, is it? It is I, Esau, your firstborn. How do you get the truth out of that exactly? All right? Now, now we get to the Rashi, which is the whole, it's the whole point of this. Rashi gives an explanation that I think has sort of maybe raised more questions than answered, than answered them. Okay? Rashi comes to seemingly the rescue of Jacob and says, no, let me tell you how to read this. This is really what Jacob said. It is I, meaning it's me, Yaakov, and Esav is your firstborn. I'm just kind of throwing in that fun fact, just in case you're wondering. And by the way, Wichita is the capital of, you know. So it's not one, it was not one thought that Jacob said. Rashi, and Rashi is the Holy of Holies, right? I'm not making fun. The opposite. Because we're going to see the depth of Rashi in a little while. Rashi is saying, no, this is two things that Yaakov said. It is I, and Esav is your first son. Okay. Okay. So now we're ready for the Zohar. Listen to how the Zohar frames this, this whole encounter. Um... And how it relates to Rosh Hashanah. Okay? So, so Yitzchak represents din. Yitzchak represents judgment. And we know that Yom Kippur is Yom Hadin. It's the day of judgment. Okay? So, makes sense. There's Yitzchak sitting, embodying din. Okay, very good. He sends Esav. Now, Esav, we know, spiritually speaking, is identified with the Sutton and the Yetzahara, the other side. So, he sends Esav out to hunt, meaning Din, on Rosh Hashanah, Din, judgment, that attribute of judgment, is sent out to hunt for the sins of Israel. Right? Very heavy. Right? While that's going on, Jacob gets instructions from Rivka, Rivka representing compassion, to disguise himself as Asaph and to go and get the blessing. All right. So, in other words, th- th- these are the spiritual dynamics that are being played out in Rosh Hashanah, says the Zohar. Okay, that's the scene. Judgment sends out the Satan. The Satan. Remember, it says in the Gemara, just so everybody doesn't get confused. We have three three negative spiritual forces, and they're all one thing. Don't think it's three different things. It's all one thing. There's something called the Yetzahara. 
There's something called the Malach HaMavis, which means the angel of not so much, right? And then you have the, um, the Satan. In English, they say Satan. But that already starts to get muddy in terms of what the actual concept is. Okay? It's not a person with horns or anything like that. So, so the Yetzirah, the Malach HaMavis, and the Satan are all one force. It's all one force. The Yetzirah attacks a person's spirit. Okay? In other words, it tries to get a person to do the wrong thing. The Malach HaMavis attacks a person's body. Right? Because that's the, that's the angel of death. That's the person, that's what shows up, you know, when a person's finished his time in this world. So that attacks the body. The first attacks the spirit. The next attacks the body. The Satan is the heavenly accuser. It looks down on Israel as a people and perhaps uh, individuals and launches an accusation if that person is lacking or up for judgment in a certain area of their life. But you see how it's all one force. It's not three separate things. It's one force. And by the way, it all works for God. It's part of God's tool chest. It's not a separate power. There's not, oh, well, we've got our God, and oh, we, I hope God beats the devil. I hope he wins this time. It's not, that's not it. Because that's two powers. And that's definitely not Judaism. There's only one power, one God, and evil works for God. Okay? And that's a topic in itself, but I'll just give you one thought on it, just so you can understand it. When the Satan or the Yetzirah comes to a person, it doesn't want you to say yes. Do you understand? It doesn't want you to say yes to its nefarious plot. Um, And it says that if a person says yes to it, that it rips its clothes and cries. But if a person says no to it, it jumps up and dances. So you have to understand that it's, it's a dirty job, so to speak. It doesn't want you to give in to it. You see? So it's but it, it's sent to us so that we can grow and get stronger and manifest potential that's within us and make it real in the world. Okay. So now, now let's get back to this idea. So, remember, we're still trying to solve this Rashi. What does it mean that... What, what, was, what was Yaakov saying... Um, it is I, ace of your firstborn. And what does Rashi mean by explaining that, that that's actually two thoughts? It is I, and ace of is your firstborn. Right? All these things tie together. Okay, so let's start to explain it now. There's a prayer in the Siddur, and uh, in this particular art scroll Siddur, it's on page 18, it's a really beautiful prayer, and I know that there was definitely at least at least one time in my life where it really gave me a lot of life. Because um, it's easy to get down on yourself. So here, I'll read just the first few words in Hebrew. Elokai nishama shenatatebi tohorahi. 
And I'll tell you what that means. My God, the soul you placed within me is pure. And that's really important that we understand that. Because we all make mistakes. But we have to understand that our soul remains pure. Our soul is pure. And I think that this is what the Rashi is saying, actually. You see, on Rosh Hashanah, it's not, it's not that we're standing before the Mida of Din, of judgment. Yaakov standing before Yitzchak and saying, it is I, Esav, your firstborn. Don't think of yourself as Esav. Don't think of the mistakes that you've made as defining you. Don't think that any impurity or whatever it is has become inextricably tied to your essence. That's not what's going on. Rashi is telling you it's two separate thoughts. It is I and Esav is your firstborn. It is I, meaning my soul is pure. I remain pure. Yeah, I'm dressed up like Esau. Because you know what? I went through the year and I got some Esau on me. <laughs> I did, God. I did. I'd like to tell you I didn't. But I did. It's on me. But it's on the outside of me. It's not on the inside of me. And I'm here to fix it, God. I want to fix it. I want to fix it. I want to. But also I have to understand what the real dynamic is. Which is, I'm not that. You created me pure, and I remain pure. And that which I've done, that garb that I've put on, that's on the outside of me. And so that is what I think Rashi is doing with that moment. He's taking what seems like one thought to the simple eye, and just like we might make a mistake in reading this and think it's one thought, in our own lives, sometimes we make a mistake, and we think that the mistakes that we make completely define us as people. That it's, that, that it's one thought. That there's a one-to-one correspondence between my mistaken actions and who I am right now. It is I, ace of your firstborn, that it's all one thought. I made that mistake, now I am bad. And Rashi is breaking it up into two thoughts. And he's telling you that's not what it is. It is I and Esav is your firstborn. It is I, meaning my soul remains pure. That doesn't change. And there's this Esav aspect which I'm dressed in right now. But that's on the outside of me. So, um, so I heard Reb Shlomo saying the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. I think I shared this with you maybe even last week, but it's so good. He said that Rebbe Nachman, if he ever did something wrong, Rebbe Nachman would say, well, before he would say, before that he would say, well, this is what he would say. 
I am the tzaddik of all the tzaddikim and the rebbe of all the rebbes and the keys to heaven and earth are in my hand. And if I make a mistake, I'm still the tzaddik of all the tzaddikim and the rebbe of all the rebbes and the keys to heaven and earth are still in my hands. You see, one of the biggest questions of being a human being and and going through our years in this world is, what do we do once we come face to face and encounter our own imperfections? How do we how do we react? What is the next step after that? Because there's a next step. A lot of people just check out and they think that they've somehow avoided that confrontation. But they don't understand that their checking out is their answer to that confrontation. So some people check out. Other people get they they dive headfirst into the encounter with their own imperfection. And they allow it to completely cripple them. You know, I think it's worth discussing, just for a moment, trying to explain what guilt is. Um, guilt is a very positive thing. But it's um, it's misunderstood and it's misused horribly. And what I would compare guilt to is a smoke detector. If you have a smoke detector in your house, if it senses smoke like there's a fire, it'll set off an alarm and you'll go, there's a fire in the house. And then you'll run and you'll see, and, oh my goodness, I, I caught it before it burned down the house, thank God. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. That's the, that's the happy version. The happy version is it never goes off. But if it goes off, that's the happy version. Okay. Guilt is a smoke detector that God put in our souls. So, if we're, if we're feeling guilt, that means that it's alerting us that there's smoke there. So, what we have to do then is search our actions and see, why am I feeling this way? You know why I'm feeling this way? Because... Um, there was this uh, birthday party and I didn't bring a present and I see them and I feel so awkward and they've been so good to me and I didn't even bring them a present and I feel guilty about that. Great. That, that's, that's great. Okay? So here's what you do. You say, I'm going to buy them a present and give them a present. <laughs> End of guilt. In other words... Guilt alerts you that there's something wrong. Figure out what's wrong. Make a plan. Guilt has now served its entire function. End of guilt. And if you feel that pang of guilt again, or if you, you know, so to speak, hear the smoke alarm going off again, you just say to yourself, well, wait a second, I already took care of it. And then you say, okay, I'm fine. So you know, thank you. I already have a plan in place. 
Thank you. I don't need you anymore. That is the proper way to deal with guilt. Now, let's go further in this. Here's what a mistake that a lot of people make, and they're coming from a good place when they make this, but you're going to see how horrible a mistake this is. Okay? What they do is they say like this. Oh, I did that bad thing. And instead of making a plan to fix it, or to try to fix it, right? Instead of making a plan, what they do is they decide that their tshuva, their fixing, is let me immerse myself in the horrible feeling of this guilt, and that will be the fixing of this mistake. (laughs) The more I allow myself to become overwhelmed with this negative feeling the more I will come to fix this horrible thing that I perceive that I've done. That is so toxic. And it doesn't work. It's like the worst of both things. Like, like I would like to... What's the blue plate special in hell? It's really expensive. There's nothing on the plate, and then they shoot you in the head. <laughs> it's like, man, why did I order that? I ordered the wrong thing. <laughs> so, so guilt treated like that is it's 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 it doesn't serve the purpose. God didn't put guilt into the world in order to mess us up. He gave us a smoke alarm to let us know that if we don't consciously understand that there's something to fix, that there will be a more intuitive sense to alert us that there's something to fix, and then that will alert, that should trigger the conscious mind to figure out what it is that needs to be fixed, and then we go out, we make a plan, and we fix it. That's what it is. And again, if you get that feeling again, you go, thank you very much, but I've got a plan in place. I don't need you anymore. I've got a plan in place. Okay? And if it comes again, you go, I'm being very patient with you. (laughs) I told you, I've got a plan in place. And that should quiet it, because it's just the Yetzirah coming disguised as that helpful person to tell you how horrible you are. <laughs> but that's just Yetzirah at that point. Guilt itself at that point as a productive creation has served its purpose. Okay? All right. Now, now we have to go a little bit further with this, just so you understand. Some people have smoke detectors, and they go off, and you check the house, and there's no fire. It was a false alarm. Okay? What that means is, is that some people are raised in certain environments where they've been given faulty guilt wiring, (laughs) which makes the alarm go off when there's no fire. And it's very easy to understand, because, you know, a smoke alarm, I don't know what one costs, but they don't cost... Hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're like, I don't know what they cost. 20 bucks? 30 bucks? This is not the most sophisticated wiring system. Right? They go off when there's no fire. Okay? So, so in terms of us, in terms of the way um, certain of us have been raised in certain homes and certain things that we've been exposed to, they've messed up our wiring. You understand? So that the alarm goes off when there is no crisis. So what we have to be able to do is say, I am searching my life right now. Why do I feel this way? If you can't find anything, you may conclude that it was a false alarm. And then go, you know what? 
Thank you very much. I checked the house. Everything's okay. Please let me know next time if there's a fire. (laughs) But right now there's no fire. And if it comes again, you say, I'm being very patient with you. (laughs) I checked the house. I'm telling you, everything's okay. I I don't need you anymore. Because again, that is not the heavenly creation of guilt, uh, of guilt at that point, in its best sense. It's the Yetzirah masquerading itself as something that's being, quote-unquote, you know, helpful. But really just to depress and mess up a person. Okay? So, I've tried that. It works. I've tried it. It works. Okay? And... Um, if you feel as though, if it keeps on reoccurring or whatever it is, you can talk to a friend, you can talk to a teacher, you can talk to someone wise and say, I'm feeling this thing, maybe I did something wrong, or let me tell you this story. Because I did this and that person did that, what's your take on it? And if the person goes, you know what, you may have messed them up. Then make a plan. But if, but if it gets confirmed by a third party that you're okay, then... Moving on. Okay? So, so, uh, okay, good. So, this idea of our inherent goodness, especially at, at a time of judgment, it, it just, we, it's just so important for us to keep this in mind. And I heard, um, uh, uh, Rabbi Orlowick is a, uh, a big expert in child rearing and uh, he gives a lot of talks around the world and um, I heard this in his name. I thought it was very, very, very wise. He said that when you, and this applies to us also, I'm going to say it in the, in the framework of child raising, but this applies to us as well and how we talk to ourselves and to each other, by the way. Um, if your child does something uh, very positive. Don't say to your child, oh, um, you did a good job. Don't say you did a good job. Don't say that was good. Okay? So that sounds like, wow, that's weird. Why is this positive? It sounds like you're saying weird stuff right now. No. No, because your child is always good. Your child is always good. You're always good. You're never not good. You're always good. If you say, oh, you did, oh, uh, you did a good job on that test because they got a 90, right, or something like that. You did a good job. Then the child associates their inherent goodness with their performance in certain things. And then, if they don't perform well in certain things, then they understandably draw the conclusion that they're not good. Because their goodness is up for grabs and is tied to performance in certain areas. So, what do you say if they bring home a 90? Oh, you must have studied very hard. Or, excellent mark. That's a very high grade. You must understand the material very well. Or you must have been listening in class. I mean, there's a whole raft of positive things that you can say to reinforce the child and to make them feel good. But not, oh, that's a good grace. 
You did good. No, they're good. You're never not good. You're never not good. Like I say, this is very important for us to understand going into Rosh Hashanah, which is a time when it's sort of like, you know, we're being judged. I mean, you know, in other years I've discussed that and emphasized the fact that the one who's judging us is the one who loves us the most. All of that is true, but there is this inescapable aspect. I mean, you know, you don't put it in the name of the day itself unless it's something that you've got to confront. It is called Yom Adin. I mean, we can soft-pedal it all we like, but it is called Yom Adin, which means Judgment Day. I mean, you know. Now, there's lots of positive aspects about that, and we'll be discussing those more at length in Shul and all the rest, but we have to be real, too. Can't not be real. We've got to be real. But in the context, even in the most stark presentation of the din aspect, we have to understand that we're good. We are good. And that doesn't change. So I'm saying even in the bleakest format, we're in very good shape. We're in very, very good shape. Then the question is, okay, I recognize my goodness. I recognize that that's an aspect of you, God. Now, what about the rest of me? How can I improve? How can I improve? And um, I got an insight into what Musser is the other day. I was thinking about Musser. Musser, uh, and like, what is, what's Musser supposed to do exactly? And I, it was a bit of a breakthrough for me. I, you can take it or leave it. But the idea is that basically all these things like Cheshbon and Nefesh, which is like soul accounting, and some people make charts where they check off what they're doing and what they're not doing, and some people get real detailed about it, you know? And it's, you know, in the, in the hands of someone who doesn't fully understand, it can be kind of real, kind of like weird, basically, because they're applying this, um, this bean-counting aspect to something that is really very lofty, and it seems like almost like a contradiction, basically. And basically, what Musser is designed to do is to make a person fully efficient. It's, it's basically, it's an efficiency program. Because you have, every person has so much goodness inside of them, And the question is, how can I maximize the goodness delivery system? And that's what Musser is. Musser is trying to figure out to stay aware somehow, because time flies, and I know as I get older, time goes faster and faster and faster. And it's um, it's quite, it's it's uh, you know, I'll tell you something. One of my favorite sort of like little episodes in history. It's like a very um, obscure chapter in history. Um, You may not be familiar with it. Um, I was in a museum in, uh, I think it was in England, and there was a uh, a series of paintings. Um, It was called A Rake's Progress. And uh, and anyway, there was a, a... a presentation of a demonstration 
in uh, like England, like many years ago, hundreds of years ago. I don't. I'm not even going to try to guess at the century. Many years ago, and people were really upset. They were really upset with the king, and they were protesting. And someone has a sign, right, that says, "Give us back our eleven days." What happened? What's this protest about? Listen to this. It's like really kind of mind-bending. They switched to the Gregorian calendar at a certain point in, in history. And they had to remake, I think they went from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, or maybe it's vice versa, or whatever it is. There was a fairly radical reordering of the days in order to make that transition. Right? Like, you know, whenever they like, like make currency adjustments, sometimes like they'll drop off three zeros. Something will cost 100,000 lira, right? And now it just costs like 1,000 lira. That's what they do. They'll just drop zeros. So and then you have to trade in the, 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 the bills. Anyway, the bottom line is, is that they made this calendar adjustment and 11 days got skipped. And the peasants thought that the king stole 11 days from them. <laughs> and they were furious. This is, this is a real chapter in history. They were furious. And there was this painting, you know, and, you know, with the sign, give us back our 11 days. So, so time goes faster and faster as we get older. And uh, not a second has been stolen from us. (laughs) Not a second has been stolen from us. But it's one of the ways the Yetzirah tricks us into not using our time efficiently. See, let me tell you something just in the here and now. Something that always fascinates me is that if you drive to a new place, right? Like, uh, whatever it is, it's, you know... Fill in the blank. You're driving and it's about maybe, let's say it's an hour outside of where you need to go. And you haven't been there before. So you're driving and you're concentrating on the road and it's like maybe it's a, a highway it's, that you haven't gone on before. You've driven by it a million times but you've never, never actually taken that turn. And you're, so you're being really alert. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Or you know when those, you see those signs on the highway that give you like the next three exits, Right? And you're waiting for your exit, so you're, you know, you're really reading those signs carefully. Is it in that batch? No, it's not in that batch. Then you drive, 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 drive. The next sign, is it in that batch? It's not in that batch, right? So you're so attuned, and then you finally get there, okay? All right, fine. So, so now you drive home from the thing, and it just goes like that. <laughs> And you can't figure it out. It seems like it took you three times as long to get there. I'm assuming that you didn't get lost. In this example, you didn't get lost. And it's the same amount of traffic. And yet you just drive right back, right? How is it that it took so much longer to get there than to get home? Well, the answer is it didn't take longer to get there, to get home. It took the same amount of time. But the way you were experiencing the journey was different because it was new. So this is another Rosh Hashanah thought. You see, the reason why, or one of the reasons why, as we get older, time goes faster, 
is because we're so familiar with the journey because we're doing the same things over and over again. We know that territory. We know that territory. It's not new. Same job, same road to the job, same meal plan, same, 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 same. With a side order of same. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> right? So, let's be conscious of that. And then you go, well, all right, I guess I could go to the aquarium this Sunday. <laughs> Then I really don't want to go to the aquarium this Sunday. And you know why I'm not going to go? The same reason why I didn't go last Sunday. Because I don't want to go to the aquarium. Go to the aquarium. Go to the aquarium. And believe me, I'm speaking to myself right now. Mm-hmm. You know? Go. Just go. And when you go to the aquarium, you know what you're going to experience? You're going to go, wow, that's a really cool looking fish. And you might even say, you know what, now that I've gone to the aquarium, I think I'm probably good for the next 20 or 30 years. <laughs> so the next Sunday, go glow-in-the-dark mini-golfing. <laughs> force yourself. For- force yourself, because that's what is actually required. You have to actually force yourself. Get in the car. Go to the museum. And you know something? Real art, like great art, like Van Gogh, you can't look at those things too many times. You cannot. And seeing it in person is just not the same as seeing a, a uh, color reproduction on a postcard. Or a, as good as those are, by the way. You know? And you know what the best thing, everyone knows the best thing about going to museums is the museum gift shop. <laughs> you know? <laughs> there isn't a bad museum gift shop in the world as far as I'm concerned. Even the worst museums have great museum gift shops. You know, so you, you will never go wrong, <laughs> even if you don't enjoy the exhibit, you know. You always have the gift shop. Um, so, so, yeah, so great art does, never gets old. By the way, the Getty here, and the, the Getty Museum, the new one, the, the grounds, the building is the star attraction, you know? Even if you don't care for the art and the holdings. You know, just as a total side note, the holdings at the Getty are, it's really, it's, it's, they're really, it's, it's like a very big museum filled with art that just largely doesn't intrigue me at all. You know, their collection is really, I think, lackluster. And there's a really fascinating reason why that's the case. And the reason is because they're the richest, most endowed museum in the world. So you would say, well, wait a second. Then they should have the best collection in the world. But they're relatively a new museum. And what happened was, they made a decision. It's a really interesting, weird thing. They made a decision early on that, that they wouldn't win every auction. Because if they acquired, if they paid top price for everything, they would drive up the price of art so high that none of the other museums would be able to afford any other pieces. And they would essentially destroy the art economy due to their great wealth. And so as a result, they made a decision for the, the sort of this delicate ecosystem of the, of the art buying and acquisition world not to acquire every single piece that they desire. 
because they would otherwise they, they certainly can have every great piece in the world, and they very much don't if you've been to the place, you know. So fascinatingly, the way they sort of answered that was to make maybe the greatest building in the world, or one of them. Because that does not destroy the art market. And so what I'm trying to say is it's, a, it's really worth the trip. Just go and walk around because the place itself is magnificent. And the gardens, it's really cool. And even if you actually don't walk into the building and look at any of the art at all, it's very much worth the trip. Um, so, so, it's going to be good. Guys, I feel like this is going to be a good year. I, you know, I don't know what that's worth. But, you know, you know, I've got a running joke with my wife. She says to me on, on, on Rosh Hashanah, how did you pray? Did you pray well? Did you pray well? And I said, ask me next year. <laughs> you know? We'll see. We'll see how the year was, you know. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what this is worth. But I am very optimistic about the coming year. I'm optimistic, and I urge you all to be optimistic. And, uh, and, uh, and don't forget to pray for God. Right? Because it's going to be the next year for Him, too. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't age. But nonetheless, wouldn't it be great if he was so happy with all of us? Wouldn't that be great? So that's something that we can pray for. You know? Okay. It should be a good, sweet year for all of us, for the whole world. Yeah.